0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. Um, This week we're going to cover a theological topic that I've been running into a lot recently. Um, It's the question of what role does our works play in our salvation? Okay. Um, the way that one um, person asked me was, "How are you working out your salvation?" Right. Um, that is a passage from Philippians chapter two, where Paul says, "You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His purpose." Okay. Now, are you working out your salvation, or are you trying to earn your salvation? Okay. And I think this question really gets you know, at its heart, it's like, really, what are the, what role do our works play in our salvation? And I think there's so much confusion on this topic, okay? There's a ton of confusion, and what you're going to get is you're going to get some churches that are really going to be stressing the grace aspect of this, okay? And they're going to minimize what our job is in the whole salvation thing, okay? Okay? And um, some of those churches really venture into what I would call hyper-grace territory, all right, when if you say, hey, we have to obey, um, like, obedience is necessary if we expect to be saved, right? Some of those churches are going to say, no, that's completely wrong. They're going to say, hey, it's all the grace of God Our only job is to believe. And what they mean by believe is essentially believe these certain facts about Jesus that, you know, he's fully God, fully man. He was sent by the Father. He paid a substitutionary death, right, to pay for our sins. Um, He's coming back. Like, if you believe these core doctrines, then that's it. There's no more work that you have to do. It's just that. And that is what the Bible means by faith. And if you do that, you're saved, and anything else in terms of obedience, that's just you trying to earn your salvation, and you need to learn to just rest in the finished work of the gospel, okay? There's some churches that go that far, okay? Um, There are other churches and other ministries that, you know, they don't go that far. I think that's getting into an almost heretical place, because, you know, when you go that far, oftentimes what happens is, you know, what do you do with people who are practicing sin in your church? And you're gonna be like, well, it, it it was, it was always by grace. You know, what can I do about that? Right? Like that's God's, you know, choice to give grace to those people because they have faith. And it doesn't matter if they're living with, you know, somebody who's not their wife or they're living with their girlfriend or the boyfriend and they're not married or they're practicing homosexuals or they're, you know, uh, there's a whole litany of sins, right? They're you know, serial murderers, you know, like, what can we do? It's all faith. It has nothing to do with works, right? And I would say that that position is a heretical position, okay? I think that's exactly what Jude and, um, 2 Peter chapter 2, what both of those chapters are really talking about are those false teachers that teach grace as a license for sin and, um, You know, they're not disciplining sin, and they're basically saying, no, 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 God's grace covers all of that, okay? Um, Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's chapter 5 or chapter 4, where, um, you know, Paul says this, and, you know, I better just read this one because this, I think, is the clearest, you know, picture of why that is a bad teaching, okay? If you have somebody who's practicing sin and they're upstanding members of your church— all right, and you're the pastor, or you're an elder at this church, um, and you just go, well, you know, what can we do? Um, God's grace covers them, and the answer is no, it does not. No, it does not. And your job as a pastor or an elder of the church is to correct those people. Okay, you have to correct them because if they continue to practice sin, you have to defellowship from them. All right. Um, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay. That's a clear example of that happening in the church. And Paul rebukes the Corinthian leaders. He says, No, you should have put these people out of fellowship, right? Um, because it's our job to judge within the church. Okay. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives the rationale for why you have to do that. Okay. And this is in verse 3. He says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. All right. So, this is, I think, very clear logic that Paul's giving here. He's saying, don't be deceived by empty words, right? Don't be deceived by those who claim to be believers and yet practice these kinds of sins. All right. And when I'm talking about this, you know type of thing i always make a distinction between those who practice sin and those who stumble in sin all right i think all believers stumble in sin all right all believers stumble in sin and i think as long as we continue to regard the action as sinful and as long as we repent when we commit these sins I believe the Lord will give us grace and mercy every single time and we stay in a position of righteousness. We have a righteous standing in Christ that is not taken away from us, right? Even though we fall, we stumble into these sins, okay? I believe we can be in, in, in right relationship with the Lord, have a righteous standing in Christ, and yet commit some of these sins as long as we're not practicing them. And that's where the scripture you know warns us all right Hebrews chapter 3 the author of Hebrews warns us be careful that your heart doesn't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin okay so the warning is that there's grace for us as long as we're stumbling in sin right if anyone commits a sin i think John says this you know you have a you have an advocate in Christ Jesus right you can come and repent and there's mercy and grace for us if we stumble in sin but we have to be careful that our hearts do not be, grow hardened by sin, okay? And that's what the, authors, uh, the author of Hebrews 3 is talking about. We can become hardened by sin if we continue to do it again and again and again, and we can start to become tempted to not label it as sin anymore, right? Oh, it's not, it's not really that bad. Is it really bad, you know? And we can start to practice sin. And if we start to practice sin, what can happen is our hearts can become hardened right and we can depart from the faith or we can fall away from the faith all right i think that is a very clear warning in scripture all right i think the almost every book of the new testament has warnings about falling away from the faith all right and this is how it happens okay i don't think it happens like you know i think you can be an upstanding believer and you can commit heinous sin you can murder somebody all right i think that's what david did i think he committed heinous sin before the lord Um, but when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he immediately repents. He immediately admits this and he confesses it and he repents, right? I think there is a possibility if he was not confronted by Nathan, it could have hardened. He could never, he may never have repented, truly repented, and it could have hardened and he could have departed from the faith. It's possible, right? Um, But the point is that like, The danger is that we become hardened in our sin, and then we could fall away from the faith. And I think what falling away from the faith looks like is either we stop following Jesus, like we stop identifying as a Christian, and like, that's not who I am anymore. Or it could be something where um, we start to even become a heretical or false teacher where we start to preach that it's okay to commit these sins and to practice these types of sins. And that's okay because God's grace covers us. And that's what I mean. I think some of those teachers that venture, that really rely on a definition of faith that's just about believing certain facts about Jesus and has, has no link to actual obedience, I think that can really venture into a hyper grace and a heretical place, okay? Um, Now, as I said, I think there are churches and leaders that still rely on a very similar understanding of faith, but don't go that far, all right? And the way they do that is they say, hey, if you um, have true faith, it will manifest in obedience. If you have true faith, it will manifest in obedience. And I think that is the position of many, many leaders in the body of Christ, and I think that's fine. That's definitely not heretical. I don't think it's quite right, and I'll explain where I think it's a little bit wrong, but I think it's mostly right, okay? I think it's mostly right, all right? And that's on the that's on one side of how we're defining faith and how we're thinking of grace that I think is a little bit wrong, and I'll explain why a little bit later, okay? And then on the other side, you can have... You know, people who are uh, ministries and leaders that really err on the side of legalism. And that's where there's a constant danger that you're going to either fall away from the faith or you were never saved in the first place, right? If you don't pray enough, if you don't evangelize enough, if you have this theology wrong, if you don't agree with me on this doctrine, whatever it might be, right, then You know, you're on a slippery slope and you're going to lose your salvation, or you're going to prove that you were never saved in the first place. I would say that's really, you know, uh, an extreme of legalism. And the thing is, I think the people who err on the side of, you know, that legalistic side, I think they hate the hyper gray side. And I think the hyper gray side hates the legalistic side. (laughs) I think they're constantly, you know, imagining that everybody in the middle is on the other extreme, something like that okay? And I think we want to be in between those two extremes. I, th- I think we want to be in between those two extremes. And I'm going to explain, you know, how you can be in between those two extremes and the theology that I think results in so much of the church gravitating to one of those two extremes, okay? So first of all, let me just say this um we can stay in between those two extremes. I think this is, is this is a healthy fear of the Lord, all right? Now, you know, this is the analogy that I use for the fear of the Lord. I think the fear of the Lord um, is like the lines on the highway. So say you're driving, and I think if you follow the lines, meaning you stay in between the lines, you respect the lines on the highway, then I think, you know, driving is a relatively safe thing to do right i don't think you need to live in a constant fear that you're going to get into an accident and die when you're driving on the highway right that is uh, what i would uh, you know liken to an unhealthy fear of the lord right an unhealthy fear of the lord is this incredible fear that you're going to fall away this incredible fear that satan's going to get you right or that you're going to displease god and he's going to judge you in a very harsh manner all right that i think is you know similar to you know Somebody, a driver who's constantly afraid that they're going to get in a car accident. All right? And my prescription to that is like, no, 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 just respect the lines on the highway, respect you know, the rules that we have, the laws that we have, the signs, all that kind of stuff, respect it, and there's a very good chance you're going to make it. <laughs> right? There's a very good chance you're going to make it if you respect all of those things. But then you have the other side, and the other side, these are the people that don't respect the fear of the Lord all right, whenever you say the fear of the Lord, they go, oh, he's a legalist, <laughs> right? And he doesn't understand grace properly, right? And they don't extol and esteem the fear of the Lord. I would liken those leaders and those teachers to people who don't respect the lines on the highway, right? And they're like, you don't need to follow those things. <laughs> you don't need to follow the signs. You know, You don't need to respect those lines. You can just drive wherever and you're going to be fine and that to me is an accident waiting to be ha- to waiting to happen right like you've got to respect those lines on the freeway it's not hard if you if you respect them you can stay in between the lines and you can make it to your destination and it's going to be relatively safe but if you have no respect for those lines those rules then you're asking for an accident and that's what i would say is you know if if your church or your pastor doesn't like treats the fear of the lord that term like it's A bad word, (laughs) you know, then that's kind of how I see that type of thing. A healthy fear of the Lord keeps us within healthy boundaries. And the scripture gives us those boundaries. The scriptures give us the signs and the lines that if we stay between these things, we're gonna be okay. All right. And specifically, we're talking about some of the stuff that I mentioned earlier. Like when you sin, it's okay, you're not losing your salvation, but you do need to repent of the sin. All right? If you struggle with a certain kind of sin, and there's millions of sins that we can struggle with, and that might be exaggerating a little bit, hundreds, I guess, right? If you struggle with jealousy, um, it, that's okay. There's grace for that, but you need to confess your jealousy. If if you you know do something out of your jealousy and you you cuss this person out because you know, they've got a nicer car than you or something like that, and you realize, oh my gosh, it was my jealousy again. That's what made me cuss that person out. Well, you need to repent of that, right? Like, when you realize that you've done wrong, you need to repent of it, right? If you struggle with lust and you look at pornography, there's grace for that, but you need to repent of it. You don't. What you don't want to do is start treating like, is pornography really sinful? You know, is it really wrong? And you start to question, is it really wrong? And you start to do it, more, you're not repenting, you start to do it all the time, and what's happening is your heart can harden. Your heart can harden, and that is what the scriptures are warning about, okay? So my point is simply this, as long as we honor the scriptures, we repent of what it calls sin, okay, and we try to live rightly before the Lord, then I think we're in a good place, I think we're in a good place, okay? All right, now that's my basic paradigm. What I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna explain theologically why I think that's a good way to understand God's expectations for us, okay? And again, we're coming back here to the question of faith and works, okay? We're coming back to the question of faith and works. And to understand theologically what's going on here, we have to go back into our history, okay? Now, what happened is that, you know, in... In the Catholic Church, okay, we're talking like the Middle Ages, all right, what happened there arose this doctrine, all right, that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. And, of course, it begs the question, well, how, do you, how does one become perfect? And the way one becomes perfect is they have to have faith in Christ and they have to do good works, all right? And you kind of have to do both of those things. And... um you know, the way it worked in the Middle Ages, it was like, well, even with faith in Christ and a lot of good works, very few people were perfect yet. And so what would happen is if you died, you know, you would go to a place called purgatory, all right? And the point of purgatory was that you would purge the rest of your imperfections off of you in purgatory until you became perfect, and then you could go to heaven, all right? And that there were so many abuses with that, because you know there became teachings like oh and if you if you pay money to the church right these were indulgences you know for the sake of your friend who died well then that could lessen their time in purgatory right they could purge off their evil faster and all it takes is you know an offering of 9999 <laughs> right to take 1 month off of their time in purgatory right and obviously i'm kind of making fun of it but that was real teaching that was going on in the catholic period okay now what happened is you know martin luther was a priest in the catholic church and he was bothered by a lot of stuff it didn't seem quite right to him okay and martin luther read you know a number of paul's letters in particular right in in, in particular we're talking like ephesians chapter 2 is one of the main you know passages that really convicted him and there were some others um where he read that it's not by works, right? But by faith alone, so that no one could boast, right? And he read you know, that those scriptures, and he got really convicted that the doctrine that they had been living by was wrong. That the way we become perfect is not by faith and good works, it's just by faith, all right? And on the basis of faith alone, we're counted as righteous and we receive Christ's righteousness, and we give Him our unrighteousness. Right, that great exchange takes place, and on the basis of faith alone, we count as righteous, and we go straight to heaven. There's no purgatory. Okay, and obviously that caused quite a stir. You know, him teaching that, and and that was what the whole Reformation was about. Right, and this is in the, you know, the 16th century. Right, the the the, the Protestant Reformation, and um that. Idea his ideas have basically been the teachings of the church for the past 500 years in the Western world the Protestant world Okay, now Catholics still exist. I should also point out that Catholicism had its own Reformation where you know, they came into a lot of agreement with some of the stuff that Martin Luther had been saying All right, so Catholicism has had a lot of you know improvement since those medieval times Um, But this has been the teaching of the Protestant church for you know 500 years now. Okay now um, I think that His teaching is largely right, okay? His teaching is largely right. But I think that there are some things that are a little bit wrong, okay? And I know this is going to kind of rub some people the wrong way. Um, I don't think it should, okay? And the whole idea here is I don't think Martin Luther and John Calvin figured the whole Bible out, all right? I think what they did was that they protested against a major error that was you know, widespread in the body of Christ at the time. And I think that they're heroes of the faith, okay? I think what they did was so important and so necessary. But I don't think that Martin Luther and John Calvin, the the reformers from that era, figured the entire Bible out, okay? Now, there are many people today, and, you know, I come from, you know, my background is mostly in the Korean church. And the Korean church, they love, like John Calvin in particular, they love that guy. You know, so a lot of people in the Korean church are like, you know, strong Calvinists. And if you're going to study theology, for a lot of them, they just basically, you know, read all of Calvin's stuff and, you know, read all the stuff from that tradition that agrees 90, 95% with John Calvin. And um, that's where I, I disagree. I don't think John Calvin figured the Bible out. I do think that they were both very important heroes for the church. I do think they did a very, they taught a lot of really great things. But I think that there there are still some errors. And in the spirit of the Reformation, I think that we should be constantly reforming. Right? We should be seeking to get closer and closer to the biblical truth as the generations progress. I think that's in the spirit of the Reformation. Okay, So let me point out where I think some of the stuff is a little bit wrong and why I think some of that wrong stuff tends to cause a lot of this type of controversy today. Okay, And it has to do with that underlying assumption. It has to do with that underlying assumption that you have to be perfect in order to go to heaven. Okay? That is how the Catholic Church and how you know the reformers understood righteousness. When you're talking about righteousness, um, you have to be morally perfect. That's what righteousness is. Okay. Now I now I think that that is a mistake. I do not think that's really what righteousness is, okay? I think it overlaps with righteousness. I think there's a lot of similarities there, but I don't think that's exactly what it means, okay? And that's because of numerous biblical passages that make better sense with a slightly different understanding of righteousness, all right? And I've talked about some of my theological biases, and one of my big ones is I really try and understand the Bible from a more Jewish perspective. Okay, I really try to understand Judaism especially in the first century when Jesus was living Um, I think understanding second temple Judaism is very important for understanding the scriptures correctly. Okay, and what I read is in the, in the scriptures from a more Jewish perspective is that righteousness has a slightly different definition. It doesn't mean moral perfection, okay? And there's lots of reasons why that's so. I can give a handful off the top of my head, okay? Um, that's because it calls lots of people righteous, all right? It calls David righteous. The Bible does, right? It calls Abraham righteous. It calls, um, even in the New Testament, it calls John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. It calls him righteous, Okay all, you know, that has, that's problematic theologically, okay, from the perspective of, you know, the Reformers and the Catholic Church, because, you know, what you kind of have to do is you have to do some theological gymnastics there, and this is what I used to do also, okay? So, for example, in Genesis, when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, I used to think the way, what that means is that, Abraham had faith in God, and so what God did was he said, Abraham, I know you have all this sin. You know, you're lying to Pharaoh. You're doing other things that are sinful, I'm sure, because you're not perfect. Like, nobody's perfect, right? So, uh, you're not perfect. So, what I have to do is two, you know, 2,000 years in the future, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for your sins, and because you have faith in me now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the atoning sacrifice of Jesus And I'm going to apply it to you retroactively in the past. And I'm going to pretend in some way that right now you are righteous. Okay? Something like that. Okay? And that's kind of the theological gymnastics that you have to do to make sense of why the scriptures would call these people righteous. Okay? And I understand why we felt like we had to do that. Because you have scriptures like Romans chapter 3 that say no one is righteous. Not even one. Right, so how do you square those circles? How do, you, how do you have passages that say, no one's righteous, not even one, over here, and then over here, you've got the Bible calling a bunch of these people righteous? Well, then you have to go, well, it must be like how it works for us today, right? The blood of Jesus is somehow being applied to them, and they're being treated as though they have no sin, and they're being called righteous on that account, or something like that, okay? Now, I think that's a messy and not accurate way to understand it, okay? I think now that what the Bible was saying was that Abraham's faith, when he put his faith in God, his faith was his righteousness. All right, his faith was fulfilling the major obligations of their relationship. Okay, and that's actually what I think is closer to the understanding of righteousness. It's it's fulfilling the obligations of covenant. All right, and um, there's many theologians that are talking about this now. N.T. Wright is a pretty well known one that's talking about this. Um, but it's this idea that covenant is about relationship, all right? Covenant is about relationship, and there are certain obligations of covenant, covenantal relationships that if you fulfill them, then you're counted as being in right relationship covenantally. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in every way, all right? And I think that that's actually a better way to understand our relationship with the Lord, all right? That if we give him the major things that he wants, right then we're in right relationship with him and at the end of the day he's not expecting us to be morally perfect in every way and in fact that's not really what the scriptures are actually saying okay meaning you don't need to have you don't need to have zero sin on your account to go to heaven okay or to be in the right relationship with him and again that's where i think all the trouble happens with these questions of to what degree do our works contribute to our salvation and stuff? Because uh, let's, let's ask this question. Okay. What happens, you know, after you're saved, let's say you come to Jesus. What happens the next time you sin? All right. So let's say, you know, you repent. God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've committed all these sins. Please forgive me. Jesus come into my life. All right. Now you're saved according to Protestant Christian theology. And then next Tuesday, you lie to somebody, you sinned well what happened? what happens there you you really have to go to you have three options okay option one is that you sinned, therefore you you lose your salvation your non right relationship with God so you better repent <laughs> you better repent right now because if you die before you repent, you're going to have a sin on your record and you're not going to go to heaven okay that's the uh, that's the paradigm that i think a lot of the more legalistic teachers embrace okay where you have to be really careful that you don't commit a sin um and stay in an unrepentant state for long or else you're going to you're you're not going to go to heaven when if you die right and again i think that causes lots of fear lots of anxiety lots of fear you know that god's going to judge me and all this kind of stuff cuz what if there's a sin that i don't even realize that i did you know and i haven't i haven't effectively repented of right i think that causes lots of fear okay so that's option 1 Option two is God, when you come to Christ, he forgives your future sin, okay? When you come to Christ, your future sin is all forgiven, all right? Now you're running into the problems where I think hyper-grace theology gets into, okay? Michael Brown, who I highly respect, has a book called Hyper-Grace. I think it's a phenomenal book. Um, And he basically makes the argument that that belief that God forgives future sins, that is, that doctrine, is the the seed for all hyper grace theology okay that idea and that's because that idea is not biblical all right nowhere in the bible does it say that god forgives future sin all right it doesn't say that right anywhere in the bible okay we have to logically assume that for the sake of not getting into the legalistic place where we're constantly afraid that god is going to judge us and send us to hell because we have sin on our account so This is honestly where many, many pastors and leaders and teachers in the body of Christ default to, where they start to teach that your future sin is forgiven, okay? When you come to Christ, your future sin is forgiven. Again, I think that's the road to hyper-grace theology, because then you start to teach, well, do you have to repent after you sin? Like, if you commit a sin, if you lie to somebody, do you really have to repent? And their answer is usually going to be no. No, you, you don't. Like, it'd be nice to. there's nothing wrong, like maybe you should repent, but practically speaking, is there any real consequence to you not repenting? Not really, right? Not really. Why? Because all of that was taken care of on the cross. You only repent one time, right, when you come to Christ, and then all of your future sin is forgiven. And I think that's, you know, when that stuff starts to get taught a lot, which it does in lots of churches, you start to ignore all the warnings of Scripture about, again, Hebrews 3, hardening your heart because of sin right? Um, and I think reading the Bible becomes very confusing because even in the New Testament, there's so much teaching and emphasis on how you should stop sinning, right? And I think that that's really hard for a lot of people because they're reading the Bible like they're supposed to. And there's so much emphasis about how you should not commit sin, how you should repent if you've been sinning and all this kind of stuff. And you have to somehow, you know, marry that with what your pastor or your leaders are saying about how, You know, uh, God has forgiven all your future sin, and you don't need to worry about that, and you're just trying to earn your salvation, a lot of those types of things, okay? And again, not every pastor goes there. Lots of pastors kind of stay in that middle ground, right? But they don't know why, right? So the question, does God forgive your future sin or not, okay? If he doesn't, then how does this work? Because if you sin, isn't there sin on your account? There's not a good logical understanding, right? Is there sin on your account or not? right? If there's not sin on your account, then there's some way in which you've been been forgiven of future sin, which again is why a lot of pastors start to admit that to themselves and start to teach that openly, okay? Um, and again, I think the problem is this idea that you have to have zero sin on your account, all right? I think if you hold to that assumption, which most Protestant Christians today do, that you have to have zero sin on your account, I think... That's what leads to all of this confusion in this area, all right? So now I'm going to give my position, all right? My position is that when you come to Christ, you receive a righteous standing in Christ, okay? A righteous standing, meaning your right relationship with him, okay? Um, It does not mean that your future sins are forgiven, okay? If you lie in the future, absolutely that sin is on your account, okay? And I believe believers in right standing with God can have sin on their account, okay? I think it happens all the time. Um, And yeah, you should repent of that to remove it from your account, because that's going to become relevant at the judgment, and it's also relevant for judgment in this life, all right? So yeah, I think if you sin, you should repent to prevent your heart from getting hard, but also because you reap what you sow, all right? And um, and I think if you, you go unrepentant, With certain sins in your life until judgment day i think they will count against your rewards okay meaning when we stand before jesus at the judgment um i think our good works will be rewarded and i think in some ways that our unrepentant sin will count against our rewards okay now that's speculation on my part okay i don't know of any verse that's super explicitly saying that i think it's implied in some passages um but again, it's still in the realm of speculation, okay? So that's my understanding. I don't think we need to imagine that our account has to be totally perfect of sin. And again, because I think that's a misunderstanding of, you know of our tradition, of our Christian tradition, all right? And again, I think it's a Christian tradition, not really a Jewish tradition. I think it's a better way to understand it that we can have sin on our account, and that doesn't necessarily bring us out of right relationship with the Lord. If we're in right relationship with God, then we're found righteous in his sight. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but we have a righteous standing, right, in the Lord, okay? And we can expect to go to heaven. I think that's, I think all of that is, is right on and that way we don't need to be um, live in in terror and fear that we're going to lose our salvation if we don't repent completely of every sin that we committed right I don't, I don't think we need to live in that kind of fear and yet at the same time we can respect the idea that we need to fight against and we need to struggle against sin because we don't want our hearts becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin all right I think both of those ideas can coexist at the same time and make logical sense and make biblical sense of why, all right? And again, all of this comes into play when we're talking about what role does um, our do our works play in our salvation, okay? And I think the best way to understand the role that our works play is that it's our job to make sure our faith is vibrant in Christ, okay? It's our job to make sure our faith is vibrant in Christ, okay? Now, God absolutely helps us with that. We can't do it alone, but I think we have responsibility in that area that is up to us, all right? And that's why the scriptures are constantly encouraging us, constantly warning us about the things that will, you know, decrease our faith and hurt our faith. Um, and it's important that we heed those warnings, right? Like a, a good example, right? The love of money, right? Beware the love of money. So this is First Timothy chapter 6. It says in verse 9, those who want to be rich however, fall into temptation and become ensnared by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. All right. So I think this is a, a great example because the scriptures are warning us about the love of money, the desire to become rich. All right. It's basically saying don't fall into that trap. Because if you do right you can become like others who have fallen into that trap and they've been pierced through with many griefs they've suffered many griefs because of that and some of them have even wandered away from the faith okay that means lose your salvation okay that means lose your salvation i think it's pretty it, it should be fairly obvious all right and that's the idea where the scripture's saying this is on us this is on us the the warning is given to us by the scriptures but it's on us to heed the warning all right? And that's the idea here. God will give us words, he will give us warnings, he will sometimes even speak to us, um, and he'll give us the scriptures that have all of these things, all right? but it's our job to obey them. We have to make the choice to obey them. And if we continually choose not to obey them, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Right, and I think the scriptures are very clear on that point. Again, Psalms chapter 1, blessed is the man. Right, who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in its season. All that he does prospers. His leaf does not wither. Okay, that idea, esteeming the scriptures, meditating on the day and night, loving the commands of the Lord, right? That person is the one who is rooted by streams of living water and bears real fruit. Okay? And you this metaphor of the tree of life is a common metaphor that's repeated multiple times in scriptures and sometimes it's used in, in other metaphors, but the idea is the same. All right. Jesus talks about this in John, excuse me, Matthew chapter seven, the one who hears these words of mine and then puts them into action. All right? The one who hears the words of mine, hears the teachings, hears the commands, and then puts them into actions like the man who builds his house on a rock, such that when the storms of life come, when the wind and the waves come, he has a solid foundation that can weather the storms of life. Okay, It's the same thing. Again and again, do not be hearers of the word, says James, but be doers of the word. Okay, The one who is just a hearer of the word is like a man who looks himself in the mirror, Okay. That the idea is you see yourself clearly. The word shows you what's going on, right? But you immediately forget. That's the one who hears the word but does not obey, all right? The one who's convicted by the word of God but does not follow through in obedience, all right? That, minded, that person is a double-minded man, meaning they have divided loyalties. That's what it's talking about, okay? Their loyalties are divided. They're not loyal to Christ and, and determined to obey him right therefore they should not expect to receive anything from the lord harsh james but true okay and again that command is given in several places we have to obey that's our job okay now to clarify it doesn't mean we have to obey perfectly all right again that's where the legalists get into you've got to obey perfectly and that fills you with constant terror because none of us can obey perfectly we're all going to stumble at times okay we're all gonna stumble at times, and when we stumble, when we sin, well, thank God we have an advocate in Christ Jesus who understands our weaknesses, right? We can come and repent and 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 we can be okay, right? We can be restored. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. Okay? All right, so that's the idea here, all right? Where the way that we work out our salvation, all right. How is it that we work out our salvation? What does that mean? Okay, it doesn't mean you're working to become perfect. Okay? It doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean you're working to become perfect and you've got to hit perfection so that you can be accepted into heaven. That's not what it means, okay? Um to work out your salvation is to cling to faith, all right? It's to have a vibrant faith until you die. Okay? And the best way to understand this is from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, all right? Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, I think, are so important for the church today to understand, all right? Um, Because what the author of Hebrews does is he likens our walk of faith in this life to the Exodus, to Israel's story of how they were delivered from Egypt, okay? And he's setting up a clear parallel between these two stories, okay? And he says, for Israel, Israel was saved through baptism, all right? And the idea there is that, you know, Israel is saved by, the, you know, the Passover, the blood of the lamb is put on their doorposts, right? And then, they're d- and then they're saved, but then they have to pass through the Red Sea. And, and that's the idea that, you know, Pharaoh's armies were right about to overtake and destroy Israel, okay? But God delivered them through the miracle of the Red Sea and then destroyed Pharaoh's armies. And the author of Hebrews, likes that to baptism. That's baptism for us, okay? When we're baptized, we're saved by the Lord okay just like israel was saved through baptism but the whole point is he goes on and says but then they went into the wilderness of testing then they went into the wilderness of testing and what happened there many of them lost faith many of them lost faith and because of that their bodies littered the wilderness okay and what the author of hebrews is doing is he's warning us that even though as believers we have been saved through baptism Now we come to the wilderness of testing. And the wilderness of testing, what we have to do is have our faith be tested, all right? Our trust, do we have trusting loyalty in God, all right? And that faith is going to be tested by all of the difficulties of life, by the hardships, by the persecution, by all these types of things. The faith will be tested. right, the one who is saved is not the one who is baptized. The one who is saved is the one whose faith perseveres until the end. All right, we have to make every effort to enter into his promised rest because we're not there yet. We are in the wilderness of testing. All right, this is the paradigm of the author of Hebrews. We are in the wilderness of testing now. This life is the wilderness of testing, and we have to hold on to faith until we make it into the promised land, which is death. Okay, If we're faithful unto death, we will receive a crown of life. All right? And that is what it means to work out your salvation. It's to pass through the wilderness of testing with your faith intact. All right? Doesn't mean you have to be perfect, It means that you have to have a living faith in Christ. And again, I always try and define faith as a trusting loyalty. A trusting loyalty that manifests in a sincere uh, obedience unto the Lord. Okay? You're really trying to obey his commands and to follow him. right, And that's evidenced by, and again, I think the scriptures delineate this, that you're not practicing sin. Okay? You're not practicing sin. You're stumbling in sin. And you repent, you're trying to live holy, but you're not practicing sin, okay? That's the line that I think the scriptures draw, all right? That is my best understanding of what it means to try and work out your salvation, okay? It is largely our job. It's our responsibility, and the Lord helps us in it. And again, this would be impossible in our own strength. I'm not trying to say any of us can save ourselves through our own faithfulness. That's impossible, right? In the same way that for the Israelites, they couldn't have survived the wilderness without God's help right? God had to bring water from the rock for them. God had to send manna from heaven for them, all right? They would not have been able to make it through on their own, so I'm not trying to say that this is all us and no God. All I'm trying to say is that God plays a part, and then we also have a part to play. What's our part? To maintain faith, okay? Our part is to maintain faith, to maintain maintain trusting loyalty, and that's not what many of the Israelites did, Many of the Israelites did not maintain trusting loyalty. They said, "Why did why did you bring us out here to die? It would have been better if we had never left Egypt. I wish we had never left Egypt." That is abandoning faith. All right? That's abandoning faith. All right? When you're like, "I want to go back to Egypt." <laughs> like that's that's not trusting loyalty, all right? Even though God was doing so many things for them, right? Even though he was he was providing supernatural resources for them. Right? Even though they passed through the split Red Sea, right, they saw the miraculous provision, the miraculous deliverance of God. They saw the plagues. They saw that stuff. And yet, many of them, their faith couldn't handle all of the trials and the hardships of the wilderness. And in the same way, look, our lives are hard. All right? This life is hard. Anybody who tells you that, you know, this life is easy, <laughs> I just feel like they haven't been through enough yet, you know, but I mean, anybody who's been trying to walk with God for a couple decades, they've got, they've got their stories of the difficulties they've faced in their lives, the difficulty of following Jesus. That's because our faith has to be tested, all right? Our faith has to be tested, and that's um, exactly what Peter talks about in First um, Peter 1. Right? He says he says this, and this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. okay? Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls, okay? So what Peter's saying there is that God has ordained that we be tested, that our faith be tested in this life, okay? That faith that has been tried as though through fire, that faith is very valuable to God, all right? And that's why he allows us to be tested in this life. And what that means is that some will fail the test, okay? Some will fail the test, all right? And again, it's not a test of earning earning your way to heaven through perfection or something like that. That's not what the test is, all right? The test is will you hold on to faith? Will you cling to faith, right, through the various trials of life, okay? And look, just being blunt, nobody goes through serious tests perfect, okay, perfectly, only Jesus did that, okay, all of us, we stumble our way through this thing, <laughs> all right, we stumble our way through this, this walk of faith, where we stumble, and then we go, oh man, I was I shouldn't have stumbled, right, let me get, get back up and start walking again, like Peter, that guy, Jesus straight up warned him, you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows, right, like, <laughs> that's a pretty good warning, right? Like Peter, you know, should have saw that one coming. He only had to like, you know, actively think about it for, I don't know how many hours, right? <laughs> he, you know, he's challenged, he denies Christ three times. And then what does he do, right? He repents. He repents, right? Lord, you know that I love you. Who affirms Christ three times, right? And um, And that's how a lot of us are stumbling through this walk of faith, all right? Like we, we stumble, we get back up, we repent, we start walking again to follow him. And that's how we have to do it. Okay, What we don't want to do is stay in the ditch. All right? We don't want to stumble in our walk and then stay there. Stay in the ditch for a while. Because okay? that's where our hearts can get hard and we can go, you know what? I don't think I want to walk this thing with Jesus anymore. You know, Like this is too hard. It's not worth it. All right? That's where we can give up on faith. Our hearts can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we can turn off the path of life and start to walk another direction. And the truth is, lots of people do that, all right? And the scriptures warn about that many times, okay? It warns about it because it's a real danger, all right? Um, But we can do it, all right? With God giving us grace and with the church encouraging one another, all right? We can make every effort to enter into his promised rest, all right? and it's not too hard it doesn't mean we have to be perfect it just means we have to be faithful all right and, and there's a a world of difference between those things okay so i hope this long talk clarifies some of that stuff i understand we're dealing basically with historic doctrine here right we're we're dealing with you know doctrine that i think is a little bit wrong and to be clear that's not because i think i have the bible figured out okay i've i've said this before i think we probably only have about 20% of the bible figured out okay and um, that's my paradigm obviously that 20% number is somewhat arbitrary okay I, have, I don't really know what percentage of the Bible we figured out my point in in saying it like that is is simply because I think it illustrates my paradigm of how how mature we are as a church I think we're extremely immature okay I think there's so much in the Bible that we don't understand so many layers of meaning that we don't understand I think the ways that we've tried to piece together the Bible um, have many errors Okay, now to be clear, I I think we're probably right about the big stuff. Okay, I'm not saying we don't know anything about the Bible, all right, but I am saying that I think there's so many little errors, um, and we're not gonna know till we get to heaven, right? I think maybe, you know, even if if Jesus tarries and we go another hundred years, I think, you know, in a hundred years they'll look back on our generation and be like, oh my gosh, they had so many errors here and here and here and here. Just like we look back a hundred years, and many of us go, yeah. These guys were all wrong about this and this and this and this and this. And um and obviously that magnifies if we go back 500 years, we go back 800 years, 900 years, right? Like, it, I think there's a lot that we're wrong about. So you hear me, my, my heart here is not to, you know, point at guys like Martin Luther and be like, oh my gosh, what a loser. He didn't know what the heck he was talking about. That couldn't be further from the truth, right? I think that guy was a great hero of the faith. I think, he, man, he had some incredible boldness. He withstood incredible persecution to stand for truths that were incredibly important for the time. I just don't think he had the entire Bible figured out. And I think it's okay for us to, you know, question some of these minor doctrinal things, okay? And I do believe these are minor doctrinal differences at the at the end of the day. I do think there's a lot of pastors that continue to walk. You know, in between the two extremes of legalism and lawlessness. But I do think it's important for us as a church to start to recognize where to draw those boundaries. All right. Um, the more and more I've been praying into the idea of unity, we have to understand where to draw the boundaries, right? Some people don't want to draw any boundaries on on one side or the other, right? They they want to say like, hey, we should never excommunicate anybody from the church, right? We're all brothers and sisters. And some people, you know, like the Pope's calling, you know, Muslims are brothers and stuff like that. You know, I would say I think he errs on that side, right? He doesn't want to draw the boundaries where they need to be drawn, where we do need to defellowship from people, where we do need to say, hey, this is wrong, major doctrine. Okay, Hey, this is this not okay. like you have to repent, right, or you can't be at our church. Like we have to draw those lines in certain you know in certain areas. And then on the other side, we have to be careful not to draw them so far that we are, you know, dividing the body of Christ needlessly. I think this, again, I think that really grieves the Lord's heart when we are you know calling you know members of his family that he dearly loves and we're saying, you know, they're dangerous or they're heretical or things like that. And look, the body of Christ has been doing that for hundreds of years in such a way that I think is is really damaging, okay? Look, I think that there's lots of Catholics that have a, a living faith in Jesus, that they're earnestly trying to follow his commands, okay? I think I would probably have some minor doctrinal differences with them, um, but I think they're probably in right standing with the Lord, many of them. And to be clear, I'm not, you know, it, you know, it, this is hard because, I. you know, I don't know a ton of Catholics. <laughs> But I can tell you that many people who claim to be Protestants, I don't think that they're actually saved, right? Like many people claim I think it's the same thing with Catholicism. I think many people who claim to be Catholics are not saved, but I do think there are quite a few real believers in the Catholic Church. If I had to guess, I, again, I don't know anybody here, but in the Orthodox Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I think there're probably believers there. <laughs> I don't know how many because I'm not I'm like totally unfamiliar with the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? but all i'm all I'm getting at is we have been dividing. For the past I don't know how long now you know nine eighteen hundred years seventeen hundred years over some of these theological differences that again I think are important I'm not saying these are unimportant theological differences, but i I think that we have allowed ourselves to divide um in in really terrible ways, especially in Protestantism because we divide over so many different things, you know, like historically, you know there was like such hatred between you know, Presbyterians and Baptists at some point and stuff like that. And we look at some of those divisions, like, you know, should you baptize somebody as an adult or as a child? And today, you know, most believers are going to be like, it doesn't really matter. If all the things we can divide about, like, that is not one of the major. But there were periods of our history as Christians where those things were, like, fighting words, you know? Like, there were serious accusations of heresy and all this kind of stuff over questions like that. And it's just ad nauseum It's just constantly when you look at all the stuff on YouTube about, you know, if you just look at anybody on YouTube, they're arguing about, about doctrine. And I I actually don't have a problem with arguing about doctrine. I think arguing about doctrine is healthy. If we do it in a spirit of brotherhood, okay, if we argue about doctrine in a spirit of brotherhood, then I think it's really healthy. It's good. As iron sharpens iron. We we sharpen each other because we all have so many blind spots. And like I said, I think we have so much of the Bible that um, you know, we we need to improve upon, right? Just speaking as a body as a whole. So I think arguments over doctrine are really healthy, but in the spirit of brotherhood, in the spirit of unity, of communion, right? We're we're one body. And um so with that being, with all that being said, even though I might disagree with some people on some of these issues, I do think these are areas where we need to champion our unity and be careful where we're drawing those lines. Okay, hope that's helpful. God bless.